Hello again, Mr. and Mrs. America, and welcome to another edition of American Billiard Radio. It's the 6th of March, 2014. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this evening. And we have another great show for you. In a few moments, we're going to be talking with uh, promoter slash author slash referee slash billiard enthusiast Jay Helfert. And you could just keep on slashing and slashing. He's uh, had quite the career in the billiard business. And uh, we're also going to talk to a couple of the winners uh, from the U.S. Bar Table Championships out uh, that were just held out in Reno. So uh, stick around if you want to hear that. But first, I'm going to take this opportunity to uh, let you know that uh, this weekend on March the 8th marks the anniversary of 114 years ago when the greatest player in the world Jake Schaefer Sr. died. It was in 1910. And just so you get an idea of uh, the impact that he had, the funeral that he held was attended by so many people that uh, the building was stuffed. They basically had uh, several hundred people waiting outside. They uh, actually observed a moment of silence during his uh, funeral for two hours. Every hall in Chicago stopped play. They had a great deal of respect for uh, Mr. Schaefer. He was uh, highly regarded as uh, a hero, basically, to, uh, to many, and the teacher of almost just as many. I have an article here from uh, the newspaper Uh, Just to give you a little bit more insight as to the impact of his death, I'd like to read it to you. This was published on uh, March the 14th, uh, 1910. And it goes a little something like this. The funeral of Jake Schaefer Sr., the late billiardist, was held yesterday at Jordan's Undertaking Rooms in Michigan Avenue. Interment was at Rose Hill Cemetery, where the body was temporarily placed in a vault. In respect to the memory of the Wizard of the Q, play in the majority of the billiard halls was stopped between 1.30 and 3.30 in the afternoon while the services were being conducted by Reverend John R. Kirshner, a Lutheran minister. Men who had seen Schaefer perform marvelous exhibitions of billiards and those who have honored him because of his accomplishments on the green cloth, paid their tribute by attending the funeral. Floral tributes came from billiard establishments all over the country, with those from the local rooms filling two carriages. One floral designed from Brunswick Balt Colander Company in the form of a billiard table required the services of an automobile to be conveyed to the cemetery. Cue players who owe their skill to the teaching of Schaefer and those who have been beaten in matches, uh, in match play with him, were in attendance. So many attended the service that the accommodations in the chapel at Jordan's were inadequate, hundreds being compelled to stand outside. The Reverend Mr. Kirshner spoke of Schaefer as the master of his profession, a man who believed in fair play no matter what the results. 
he admonished Jake Schaefer Jr. to follow as closely as possible the example set by his father, and if he realized he could not succeed in this line, the sooner he attempted another profession, the better. Mr. Kirshner eulogized the great accomplishments of the noted player, many of his tributes bringing tears to the eyes of the old man who had seen the wizard play. The body will remain in the vault until arrangements are completed for a lot at Rose Hill. Friends of the late Q Master all over the country will raise money to erect a monument over the grave. Now, the uh, article goes on to mention some of the uh, pallbearers that uh, were uh, given the privilege of carrying the casket. And then, of course, some of the other people in attendance. And just to give you an idea of the scope of the people that uh, were there, I will read the list and then uh, try to give you an explanation of some of, uh, of who they were. Uh, the first one on the list as the pallbearer was a gentleman by the name of Charles Matthews. Charles Matthews was a, was a renowned, well-respected marker or referee back in those days. And uh, he... Uh, reft games for everybody from Schaefer to Thomas Foley to uh, even Willie Hoppy and Schaefer Jr. He was uh, a well-respected man. Uh, the next on the list is Thomas Foley. Thomas Foley is widely considered to have been the dean of Chicago Billiards. He had his hand in, in almost every tournament that took place and he actually uh, got involved later on in his life in uh, Chicago baseball and was directly involved with the formation of the Chicago Cubs and the White Sox both. So uh, Foley is kind of a hero not only in the billiard world, uh, having been the first state champion of Illinois, but also uh, in the baseball world for having founded the Chicago Cubs and then sold that team to Comiskey to create the Chicago White Sox. Next guy on the list, William P. Mussey. Mussey had the... uh, most famous room in the country for several decades. Mussies on Madison. Uh, and the list goes on. Robert Meal, John Shank, Clarence Green, another professional player. John Dinicum, Eugene Benzinger, uh, of course of the Benzin- Benzinger clan, who were married into the Brunswick family, and uh, they ran ben- Benzinger's rooms up until the 70s. Uh, 1970s, that is. Uh, the honorary pallbearers were George Sutton, another sh- famous Chicago player, uh, Willie Hoppy, as you probably have heard his name before, Aura Morningstar, another great player, uh, crossover baseball player, Calvin Demarest, you may or may not have heard of him, he was a famous Chicago player, uh, ended up uh, going a little crazy, and uh, he basically stabbed himself and his wife, ended up in an assail- insane, insane asylum and uh, where he was accidentally presumed dead a year before he actually died. <laughs> Joseph Caprone, another famous player. Charles, uh, Parker Byers, John Callahan, Charles Peterson. Some of you might have heard of Charlie Peterson. He was a fancy shot expert for probably 50 years. Simon Forham, Dan, uh, Dan O'Leary, Alex Taylor, John Matthews, Al Manasaw, George Wheeler. George Wheeler had a lot to do with the Illinois Billiard Room Association. 
A.C. Anson or Cap Anson. Uh, he was very famous, very well known in Chicago. As a matter of fact, so well known and so famous that they actually named a day uh, a Chicago holiday for after Mr. Anson. They call it Anson Day. Uh, the list goes on with uh, L.W. Perkins. You might have heard of Lanson or Lansing Perkins. He was actually a sheriff out uh, in Arizona during the Tombstone Saga. He was directly uh, involved in that whole uh, Tombstone thing. Louis Reed, Fred Conklin, Charles Tens. Charles Tens was uh, Hoppy's manager, Willie Hoppy's manager, and Schaefer's manager. Uh, B.E. Benzinger, obviously with the Benzinger clan. Julius Balk, partner of Brunswick, the Balk, Brunswick, Brunswick Balk Colander Company. Uh, Julius Balk was a partner. Bought out by Brunswick, actually. John Hastings, Alex Donovan, Mr. Hicks, Kelly Mulvaney, Charles Wiegum. Wiegum was a, a local room owner, as was John Flinner, who was also on the list. Louis Benzinger, also on the list. Frank Hoppy Sr., which was basically Willie Hoppy's father. Eddie Weiss, Louis Houseman, Jay Doty, who was the son of uh, Harvey Doty. And the Dotys had owned billiard halls back uh, in Chicago going back into the 1860s. Martin Frey, or Fay, excuse me, he was also a local room owner. Thomas Martin, A.M. Clark, Al Friend, Benjamin Brunswick, obviously with the Brunswick clan. Clem Ellison, Eugene Day, H.H. Parker, and Thomas Phelan Foley. That was uh, Thomas Foley's only son who had been named uh, Phelan, was his middle name, after the great uh, Michael Phelan, who's considered the father of Amer American billiards. Uh, basically, uh, the Phelan, uh, Michael Phelan was, is responsible for the diamond markers that you see on billiard table rails today. Uh, he also uh, was the first person to put angled cushions on American tables. The uh, Unlike what you see now on snooker tables where the cushions are rounded around the pocket edge, uh, Phelan was the one that decided to cut them at an angle for more reliable, scientifically reliable angle shots. So as you can see, Schaefer's impact on the entire billiard world was immense. He was, as I mentioned before, a highly respected player, um, it just impeccable integrity, and was known the world over for being a master at the game. So much so that uh, they actually had to change the rules of the most popular games at the time to try to slow him down because he would run point after point after point after point. To the, to the extent that it became boring to the spectators. So they had to find a way to make the game more interesting and more challenging to his opponents. So they ended up changing the rules just to try to thwart Schaefer. So hats off to Jacob Schaefer, uh, Jacob Schaefer Sr. for his accomplishments in the billiard world. We'll be right back after this. The world feels so quiet, 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 quiet
All right, I'm talking with uh, Jay Helfert. How's the weather out there, Jay? Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> I'm very fortunate to be in Southern California. Yeah, man, I, I would rather be there than here, that's for sure. We got, uh, it's like we're in the middle of this relentless winter that just won't end. So, uh, you know, you guys are very lucky, that's for sure. Well, you have my sympathy. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, so I know what it's like. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's true. They're getting pounded pretty well, too, from what I understand. So um, tell us, man, you've, you've had the opportunity to wear a multitude of hats over the years, you know, being a ref, being a promoter and an author. Um, what's that like? I've been pretty fortunate, David. I've tried everything in the pool world. Um, I started out like everybody else. I was a pool player when I was a young man. And, uh, you know, I was ambitious to be the best player I could be. And uh, I started playing in some tournaments and, you know, money games and things like that. And along the way, I discovered there were guys that were just a little bit better than me that I would never catch up with. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of uh, segued off into being a pool room owner. Wow. And I had my first pool room when I was only 27 years old. Wow. Um, so... I own pool rooms. I've had I've owned two pool rooms and been partners in two others. And uh uh I started refereeing tournaments. Actually the first ones were like forty years ago. I refereed straight pool tournaments out here in Los Angeles. I got paid five dollars to do a hundred and twenty five point match. <laughs> and that's one of the hardest jobs I ever had in pool because it became it can be uh be very difficult. Yeah, to keep yeah. track of the ball count when yeah. some guy's walking around the table looking at a shot for five minutes. I remember I used to have to say 63, 63, 63, 63. I'd say it over and over again in my head just so I wouldn't <laughs> lose track of the ball count. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that, that was my first job. And then after that, uh, you know, I started. Uh, uh, I did worked on some nine ball tournaments, and I think the first tournament I was ever tournament director. It's been over 30 years ago. It was Caesars Tahoe. That was 1982. Okay. So I've got over 30 years, you know, as a tournament director. And uh, then I started promoting tournaments uh, gotcha. in the late 80s. Wow. Well, that's a lot of, that's a lot of pool. That's for sure. <laughs> no, I hear yeah, yeah. Well, it's been, it's somehow uh, uh, my life work has been woven around the pool industry. I tell you, uh, I know I understand what you're saying about uh, th how hard it is to ref because uh, it's one thing to just kind of casually watch a match, and it's something entirely different to pay attention to every ball, like you said, every count, every foul, every stroke. You know, that's that's a lot of responsibility. That's for sure. Well, the way we've done many tournaments over the years, there might only be one or two referees for eight tables, yeah. and basically you've got to oversee them all. And what happens, um, typically during the course of a tournament, what, what most of the decisions and calls you make are on close hits. Mm -hmm. And I would estimate in a major tournament, I may have to call 75 to 100 shots, you know, yeah. over, the course of, uh, over the course of five days. And what I learned, and being a tournament director and a head referee is that I really needed to get them all right. A referee <laughs> doesn't get the luxury of missing a ball once in a while or making a mistake. Right. To have a really good tournament, I've got to get a perfect record. 
If I miss one shot, if I make a mistake one time, as far as I'm concerned, that was that's only a fair tournament. And if I made two mistakes in the course of a tournament, I feel like I really had a bad tournament. Yeah. So you've just got to get you've got to get those those hits correctly. Yeah. And there's an art, there really is an art to that. Stand, placing your body where you watch the shot from in the right place. And to this day, David, I go to some tournaments and I watch where the referees are standing when they're watching a close hit, and they're in the wrong position. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This I I want to say that 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 it's probably an underestimated responsibility. I would think you know. That's that's a lot of like you said. You got to be in the right place. You got to pay attention to what's going on. So uh, maybe there should be some kind of a pool ref school or something like that. You know. Well, there is. There are there are schools. I know the BCA pool leagues have schools for for their referees. Mm, okay. And uh, you know those are those are for amateur tournaments, and I know that th- their events are just as important to the amateur players. But typically, all my career, I've been working with the top professional players, and mm. one mistake can make the difference in the match in a whole tournament for a player. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you just got to you just got to make sure you get it right. That's and a I lot pride of pressure. myself. Maybe maybe something I pride myself on as much or more than anything is that I feel that I am one of the best referees. Cool, cool. Speaking of being the best ref, um, what was it like? Uh, well, it's a lot of pressure. So what was that like whenever you were refing for the uh, the million-dollar match that uh, Earl was involved in? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> you got to get that DVD. C.J. Wiley finally released that DVD. The way the uh, contract was written with the insurance company is that if a player ran five racks, that a referee must come in and rack the ball for the next five games right. and also, you know, officiate the match. And they brought me to the table uh, down there in Dallas at CJ's, you know, Billiard Palace. Mm-hmm. They brought me to the table after five games. Earl would not let me rack the balls for game number six. He kind of pushed me out of the way. <laughs> and then CJ came over, and it's, so Earl went ahead and broke the balls for game number six, a rack that he had, you know, put up there himself. Mm-hmm. And then CJ came over and insisted I do it. Fortunately, I racked the balls for racks number seven through eleven. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, for the insurance company to make a settlement, it's a good thing Earl Earl actually ran eleven racks. Mm, okay. And um, that that last rack, what that did is it gave him five racks that were racked by a referee. Right. And right. Uh, that's why it ultimately, you know was awarded in, in Earl's favor and Man. he did get a settlement a, a pretty healthy settlement did he know? did he know when he was trying to rack six did he know that he was not supposed to or was he just trying to defy I don't the know rules if he knew, I don't know if he knew or not but I told him uh, when I went over there that that I have to rack from now on and uh, he just kind of ignored me <laughs> and, uh, and until CJ came over there he wouldn't let me rack the balls what Earl had done is he figured out a way to break on that table where he could get the nine ball going towards the corner pocket every time. Yeah. And I saw that. On the sixth break that I watched, I saw that. Mm. He didn't make it, but it but it headed towards that corner pocket. And I made sure to put up a really tight rack from now on. That's probably the most pressure I ever felt as a referee was racking for games 10 and 11. Yeah. Would they have considered it... Um running out if he had sunk the nine on the break, or did, would that not count? It did count. It did count. Okay. And from what I understand, in the first six games where he racked the balls, 
He did make the nine on the break twice. Oh, okay, okay. Well, yeah, that's kind it of a different story. It was all part of the run. It yeah. was all part of the run. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, no, that's cool. I did not. I, I was not aware of that. That 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 was allowed, but I hadn't even thought about it up until now. To tell you the truth, that's uh, hell. It would have been just as much pressure, obviously, for you as it was for him <laughs> under those circumstances. I guess. I didn't want to be the one that messed up. That's for sure. <laughs> no, me neither. And I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, David, they were not easy tables. They no. were like four and a half inch pockets. They were they were tough gold crown tables. That day, I don't think anybody had run three racks wow. up till that point. The weird thing, the thing that made it so strange, is the insurance policy just went into effect that day. It was the very first day of the very first tournament, and Earl runs 10 wrecks. <laughs> and we all know that that's so unusual and so rare. In all the years I've been around pro- professional pool, I've only heard of 10 wrecks being run on a, on a on a full-size table maybe two or three times. Yeah, that's an outstanding accomplishment, no matter who it was or no matter how he did it. That's uh something to be uh, proud of, I guess, you know, that's something he can tell. It was remarkable. It was remarkable, particularly the combination he made in game number 10. That was was an extremely difficult, long combination, and uh, he fired it in. Little did he know he needed to run the next rack, too. (laughs) But he did. See, what a lot of people don't know, the match was a race to 13. Okay. And... um, his opponent actually won a couple games after that, Nick Menino, and I think Earl ended up winning the match uh, thirteen to two. Okay, okay. Did uh, what was the uh, was there another uh, prize at stake other than the million dollar bit? Was there something else? Involved? Oh yeah, it was a tournament. It was a tournament. Okay. And the first prize in the tournament was twenty thousand dollars. Earl went to the finals, and interestingly enough. C.J. had hosted the tournament in his pool room. In the finals, C.J. Wiley played Earl and beat him in the finals. So Earl finished second, which <laughs> paid him $10,000, and he was upset. Oh, he I was imagine. upset that he didn't win the tournament. Yeah, well, that's, you know, I guess kind of a letdown after having accomplished such a huge number, you know, a big run, and then placing second would be kind of a letdown, I guess, you know. Well, that was that was Earl. Back in the '90s, that was Earl. He wanted to win every tournament he played in. He was sure. he was highly competitive. And the truth is, in the '80s and '90s, he was the dominant nine ball player. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what um, did you uh, sort of get out of playing yourself, or do you still play competitively? I I well, rarely, rarely. Gotcha. I played from the time I was about 18 years old. Till I was, oh, in my mid-30s, I played pool, you know, regularly. In fact, uh, for many years, I probably played pool every day of my life, mm-hmm. um, even when I owned my first pool room. But once I started directing tournaments in the early 80s, I, I tried to direct a few tournaments and play in them because oftentimes part of my pay was a free entry fee. Sure, sure. And I tried to do do both. And I, I discovered that it it was impossible for me to focus on playing and also directing a tournament. Yeah. It was just too much distraction. So, yeah. you know, I just gave up playing. Well, and you would think somebody would probably frown upon it as far as playing in your own tournament kind of a thing, you know. I guess uh, not that you 
could actually cheat, but I just think that uh, that may be politically incorrect. For Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. In fact, I used to sponsor players in tournaments, and I would never sponsor or back a player in a tournament that I was directing. I just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Because yeah. it was one of those things that, you know, somebody could uh, look at that and say, well, he favors this guy. Yeah. You know? Right. So, and if and if there was a player that I was involved with with in, in any way, shape, or form, and he was in a tournament I was directing, if there was a call that had to be made, I would make sure that my assistant or another another director, a co-director, made the call. Right. I didn't want. I tell him. I said, I don't want to make that call. You guys go out there and call it for me. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to be thought of as favor, like you said, favoring somebody or whatever the case may be. Exactly. Exactly. I feel. For me, I think I think one of the things, David, that I'm, I'm most proud of is that I have a uh, a good reputation for integrity in the pool world, and uh, you know, I, I that's important to me. I want to keep it intact. Well, you know, and that, I think that's one of the most important things to have uh, in the pool world is your reputation, either as a, a a hall owner or as a ref or as a player. You know, that uh, that may be one of the things that brings down some of these pros these days is. Uh, you know, they got a bad rap following them around. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, uh, the 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 shame of it is that you make one mistake and it kind of it'll it'll haunt you for a long time. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just it's just it's just the way I the way I was raised by my family. You know, I grew up in the Midwest. You've heard of Midwestern values, and mm-hmm. I learned from the time I was a child, you got to keep your word. That's all. Yeah. And. Uh, I can tell you that even years ago, 25 and 30 years ago, when there were big money games at tournaments, you know how, you know how it used to go. Probably is that uh, at most professional tournaments back in those days, the practice room was the action room, and yeah. that's where all the games went on. But right. oftentimes, when there was a big money game, the players would come to me and hand me the stake, which could be as much as ten or twenty thousand dollars, and say, "We want you to hold the money." You know, and here I am refereeing the tournament, and I'm carrying this huge wad of cash around with me. And there were there were even times late at night they'd still be playing late at night. I said, "Listen, I got to get some sleep. I'll go up to my room." Yeah. And they 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 trusted me. I went to my room, took the money with me, and sometimes in the middle of the night, somebody call my room and say, "So and so won the match. He's coming up to get his money." <laughs> and, oh uh, man, that sounds like a lot of fun, though. It really does. Yeah. You know, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate. I felt like I uh, I lived during a golden age of pool, which was you know the '60s, '70s, and '80s when we had so many colorful characters in the pool world. Right. You know, this is very true. Uh, All right, Jay. Jay, Sorry, I almost called you Jeff. All right, Jay. Let me uh, take a quick break, real quick, and when we come back, we'll uh, talk a little bit about your new book. All right. Sounds good. All right, everybody, and we're back, and we're talking with Jay Helfert, uh, the man who wears many hats. That's, <laughs> he's an author, he's a referee, he's a promoter, and uh, spends a lot of time in the Philippines, from what I understand. 
Yes, I do. <laughs> what uh, What do you think would be, if you could, uh, I don't know, sort of sum it up, what do you think is the biggest difference between uh, uh, the upper echelon of players down there and up here? Well, uh, number one, they're hungrier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would guess so. I would guess so. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the top pool players in the Philippines come from what we we consider poverty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally, I've seen the lifestyles they grow up in, and I mean, I'm talking about dirt floors and, and nothing but rice to eat, sure, and yeah. maybe only once a day, and. When you come from that and you have an opportunity to make money playing pool, you will really work hard at it. Yeah. And uh, some of the guys are the best players in the world, like like Dennis Orculio and Efren Reyes. They came from that. They came from nothing. Right. And that's why when they come to a tournament in the United States and they got a chance to win or ten or fifteen thousand dollars, you don't hear them complaining. Mm-mm. You know. Right. They're they're and. Uh, to, to add to that, the conditions they play under when they're young kids, they the, I've been to pool, many of the pool rooms there and the little out-of-the-way places and down the back alleys. The tables are, though, guys here, when guys here complain about pool tables, you know, the cloth <laughs> or the rails or yeah. something, and I just laugh because these guys grew up playing on tables that are really kind of garbage, you know I mean? Right, right. The, the rails might be loose, the cloth might be torn, um, the tables are, you know, just old and beat up, and they learn to play on equipment like that. So when they come here, I don't care what table and what cloth is being used. It feels to them like they're driving a Cadillac now. Yeah, you know? absolutely, Cause, absolutely. Because the conditions are compared to what they grew up with. The conditions are so perfect. Absolutely. So it's 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 those are a couple things that I'm I'm very much aware of. Is, yeah, is sure. How how. Uh, you know, how much it means to them to be able to make a living at this game. Right, right, absolutely. I went to, uh, I used to live in Texas, and so we would take jaunts into Mexico fairly frequently. And I can remember uh, on one occasion going into a a bar slash pool hall down there, and uh, it was, uh, there was, I want to say like three seven balls and four six balls Uh and and three, exactly. you know, exactly. mismatched ball sets and no cues on the wall or anything, you know. So, like you said, it's, it's sometimes it's easy to 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 uh, to uh, take for granted the things that we have here. That's for sure. Let I me, agree. Let me I ask agree. you: uh, You got a new book coming out? Is this correct? I sure do. Finally, five years later, after Pool Wars. <laughs> And uh, what's uh, it, what's it going to be? Well, you don't have to tell us everything about it, but uh, what's all up with that? Well, I'll tell you. It, Pool Wars was so widely, re- well, I should say so well-received. To this day, I, of course, I still sell copies of it. I have a publisher now that, that continues to sell it uh, through a variety of sources, where now I get a royalty. At the beginning, it was, you know, I self-published it. But... Uh, um, to this day, if I go to a tournament, people will come up to me and tell me how much they enjoy pool wars. Right. And it just blows me away that literally there's thousands of people that have read that book and have enjoyed it. Um, and I decided really three years ago that I was going to write a sequel to it. 
And it's taken me a long time because I only worked on it once in a while. Now I'm kind of in the finishing stages, and my goal is to get it out there this year to complete it. I'd say it's 80 to 85 percent done now. Okay. And uh, you know, given me give me a month or two of free time, and I can I can complete it. It's the name of the book is More Pool Wars. Okay. I didn't want to put Pool Wars Two or the Second <laughs> Pool Wars. I made it More Pool Wars, and it's very similar to to the original Pool Wars in that it is a series of short stories. Okay. Um, it is not one lengthy narrative. It is many, probably like 40 different short stories about different events and happenings during the course of my life, you know, as a pool player. One thing that is different, there are stories in there that are not pool-related. They are just life stories that I think that um, everybody can kind of uh, um, relate to because the kind of things that happened to me in the course of my life, I think have happened to other people too. And uh, I thought, I'm going to put them in there and we'll see how people, you know, I want to see how people respond to that because there's probably going to be a dozen stories in there that are about events that took place. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, um, climactic kind of events, very important, you know, where where something unusual happened, but it was not necessarily around a pool table or around a pool room or a pool tournament for that matter. Right. So I'm going to throw that in. Plus, I'm going to, at the back of the book, is my little black book of pool secrets. That's going to be the second part of it, which will be a small part of the book, but it's going to be it's going to be in there. And I'm going to put some things in there, some tips and advice to players that are probably it's probably aimed more at you know intermediate level and above players, but some things they can do to help them with their game and help them be a better player. And these things have never been in an instructional book. A lot of it's mental. And a lot of it's just little bits of information that these the authors that have written instruction books didn't see fit or didn't know to include. Right, right. Okay, cool, cool. It sounds like a good piece, and I'm sure you're going to let us know when uh, whenever that's ready to ready to get your hands on. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, probably we're looking at summer. Okay, okay. Outstanding, outstanding. How did the um, the Bigfoot thing go for you? Well, we've been doing the Bigfoot now. It started as the Fat Boy Challenge five years ago, and it evolved into the Bigfoot Challenge a couple of years ago. And we've been doing it. We've done uh, about a dozen of them so far. We've had invitational fields of sixteen, and a couple times we tried thirty-two. But we're kind of we're kind of at the point where we feel like better to. It's easier to run an event like that on one table with sixteen elite players and uh that tournament is very well received because we get only the top players the prize money is is you know um substantial for a small field like that and they play long matches they're not short you know they're they're good long matches for a tournament like race to 11 10 ball on a 10-foot table it's a that's about a two-hour match yeah yeah yeah, that's a lot of hitting. That's a lot of balls. Did you? You got um, you to play a lot of games, and you got to play real good. Yeah, and you and, and it, they're all single elimination events, so one loss and you're out. Yeah, there you go. Did you um, feel like Derby City was pretty successful this year? I thought it was great. Okay. I thought it was great. We were all disappointed about Tunica last year and yeah. what happened down there, and 
the conflicts with other events and stuff like that. Consequently, the attendance was not good at Tunic, and we lost that event. And who knew what, knew what was going to happen coming back to Derby City, but actually attendance was up at Derby City over previous years. I mean, we had, I think there was 361 players playing bank pool, and over 300 in one pocket, and, and like 285 in nine ball. That's huge fields of players. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Well, I made a comment on one of the earlier shows. I think that that may very well be the the largest tournament that there is right now in the world. I think so. I think, so. I think in, t- in terms of attendance, even total prize money is pretty big. When you add up all the prize money for all the divisions, including the Bigfoot Challenge and uh, and all the other things that go on there, they got a straight pool challenge. Um, they had that... Uh, what is the thing Joe Tucker does, that world PPA, mm-hmm. the rotation game they, yeah. that he plays? Yeah. You know, it's there's a lot of opportunities for players to make money there, and typically the big winner every every year at that event will win in excess of $40,000. This year, um, my friend Dennis Arcuya was the big winner. He fell a little short, but he won about $38,500 for the week. And, yeah. you know, in pool, that's not a bad payday. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> like you said, in another country, that's, uh, you know, you're a rich man. <laughs> in, the, in the Philippines, that's a small fortune. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Jay. Well, we certainly take uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, it sounds like um, your book's going to be really exciting, and we're looking forward to it. Thank you, David. I enjoyed talking with you. All right, you take care, and uh, the best of luck to you in 2014, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Thank you, David. All right, take care. Hi, I'm Scott Lee, PBIA Master Instructor from Largo, Florida. And I'm Randy Gatlicker, PBIA Master Instructor from Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the One Minute Pool Instructor. So what do we got today, Scott? Our topic this week is the purpose of warm-ups, Randy. First of all, let's talk about what the heck is a warm-up. Yeah. Well, I think a warm-up falls into two categories, Um, but we're certainly talking about warming up what, our muscles, Scott? Sure, and, and you know, warm-ups are what I consider to be a deliberate action done immediately prior to striking a cue ball, as opposed to moving my cue uh, in comfort strokes uh, to confirm my aiming, which some people... Yeah, that's like two to. different things. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the first reason we take warm-up strokes is to get comfortable with our muscles. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And then I think the second reason, and, and no more important or least important, is we want to know where our cue tip is in relationship to our cue ball. I have to know before I go to my game stroke, is that where I'm going to strike my cue ball? So what is the accepted number of warm-up strokes, Scott? Well, you know, we talk about that a lot, and, and, and we give our students a a reference number of somewhere between one and four. Uh, if you don't have at least one, then you can't do your set and decide if you're ready to go or not. If you have more than four, 
then uh, we call that uh, using an untrained cue where who knows when you're going to uh, stop and hit the ball. Most pool players though will be comfortable with two or three. The, the important thing is that we want to use one or the other, not two on some shots and three on another. Oh yes, the same rhythm all the time. Now, the most important thing I see in warming up, and, and many books tell it a little bit different. I've listened to instructors talk about this a little bit different, but that's how the eyes operate. When I grew up, I was taught that on my backstroke, I would check my target ball. Then on the forward stroke, my eyes would dart down to the cue ball and back and forth as many warm-up strokes as I would take. Later on in schooling, I found out that it's much easier and the information is, has a lot larger impact if I don't go back and forth between object ball cue ball. After I line up on my object ball, I go right to my cue ball, I do my set number of warm-up strokes looking right at the cue ball, I satisfy the brain, my eyes go up to the target, and I start my uh, uh, execution. Um, but many, many people have a very poor eye pattern where the brain is not getting sequential information. Exactly. They're, they're doing it too quick or they're uh, not moving the eyes at all. Or intermittent. Mm -hmm. One way one time and another way the next. And it, all it is is confusing the brain. We are, we are trying to keep it kiss and consistent. Absolutely. Well, that's a great description of why well, we do warm-ups. It's Randy. pretty simple. Huh? Muscles, cue ball, off you go. There you go. What's next? I'll tell you what, join us next week when we're going to tell you about the five great stroke robbers. Stroke robbers? Stroke robbers. Uh, I've seen them before. You've seen them hanging around yeah. your game? Yep. We see them a lot in pool school. I'm Randy G, checking out. I'm Scott Lee, and thanks for tuning in to the One Minute Pool Instructor. Welcome to this week's edition of Pool on the Grind here on AmericanBilliardRadio.com. I'm your host, Allison Fisher of NYCGrind.com, and joining me is the new U.S. Bar Table Women's 8-Ball Champion, Liz Lovely. Thank you very much for joining us, Liz. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Now, you just came off of winning this event in Reno. Uh, tell me a little bit about your experience there. Was this your first time in Reno, or have you played in this event before? Um, well, this was my first time ever getting to go to Reno. I've always wanted to go to, I've always wanted to go before, but um, it's pretty expensive to fly out there for me from Ohio, and I was lucky enough this year that my Q sponsor, Mike Durbin, helped me out with my plane ticket, so I was super excited to get to play, and then really excited that I got to win the eight ball event and the women's all around. So how did you place in the other two events? I finished um, second place in the women's ten ball and third in the nine ball. Uh, and, and all of these events were pretty much back to back, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it was seven days in a row. Never really got a full day off, so wow. Whole week of playing. Yep. And that's the sort of thing that players of uh, of your 
of your caliber. You've been playing for quite a number of years, and you've had history as a junior player as well. So this is pretty much a, a typical routine for you, correct? Yeah, pretty t- typical. Definitely used to being on the grind and having tournament after tournament. So, How did you feel coming into the tournament at Rio? Is there anything that you would say stuck out for you or talk about talk about the overall um, experience? Um, overall, I thought it was a really great tournament. They had, well, they had the two pro events going on. They had the 10 ball Oh no, they just had the pro one pocket and then they had the ten ball event for the men and that was really exciting to watch too because they had all the all the best players in the world were there. Toughest bar table tournament I've ever seen. And um so I got to watch that while I was waiting to play my matches and I just like I would have at least three or four matches a day, so it was a really great tournament. I'll definitely be trying to go back next year. Yeah, you definitely have to go back and defend your defend your title. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. Are you playing, um, playing bar box as of now? Yeah, um, I used to play a lot more big table pool, like when I used to live in Ohio. And now that I live in the Midwest, it seems like most of the tournaments out there are definitely on bar tables. So I would have to say that most of my pool playing these days is on bar tables. Now, and, and prior to going to Reno, you also had another big win in Olesa. Now, have you played in that tournament before, and, and how have you done in the past? I have. I've actually done really well in Olesa. Um, I think out of five times I've played it, I've won it like three or four times now. And so that ended on Sunday, and I had I was really happy to win that. And then uh, we got up at five in the morning to fly out from from Kansas City to go uh, to Reno. And then as soon as we got there, we had to go check into our room and then got called up to a match right away. So wow. pretty hectic day. <laughs> pretty, pretty much no downtime. No, not at all. <laughs> now, outside of pool, you're, you're not playing on the pro tour right now, and you're, you're mainly... Um, focusing on playing more amateur tournaments. Is that correct? Correct, yes. Um, I would like to play on the Pro Tour again one day. Well, when I when I used to play on it when I was like 14, 15, 16, there was almost like 10 events per year. It was like every month you would have an event to practice for. And uh, now it just kind of seems, there's not as many events. So for now, I'm just sticking on the amateur route. But hopefully one day, um, if they can get more sponsors and schedule more events per year, I would definitely like to get back on the pro tour. That would be one of my goals. So, Now, it, you've been around pool for quite some time, and as some of our listeners may know, you're a two-time junior national champion in uh, 20, 2010 and 2011. Is that correct? Yeah, and I think like 2000. Uh, seven or eight, too, actually. I won uh, 14 and under when I was 14. And then that year I got to go to Australia for the, you know, for the world junior pool event. And then, and then when I was 17 and 18, I got to go to Nicaragua and Reno. So 
two days from Wheeling and then heading to Super Billiard Expo right after that. So pretty excited yeah, for all the events coming up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's really nothing quite like the the atmosphere, the the expo. There's just so many players, so many uh the vendors and the queue makers and everyone under the sun, so which event right. will you be Very playing excited. in? Oh, I'm playing in the women's amateur event out there. So. All right. Well, I'm going to hope they don't draw you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not, too. <laughs> All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Liz, and I wish you a lot of luck yeah, on your travels. And uh-huh. we will uh, see you at the Super Billions Expo. All right. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this week's edition of Pool on the Grind. We will see you next week. I'm Allison Fisher, signing off on AmericanBilliardRadio.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Go Play Pool app featured room of the week on American Billiard Radio. Today, I'm talking to James Oswald, the owner of Diamond Billiard Sports Bar in Cape Coral, Florida. How you doing today, James? Good. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you and learn more about the the home room of Corey Duel. And from what I hear, one of the best rooms in Florida. Uh, tell us a little bit about Diamond Billiards. Well, I got 20 diamond tables, 12 nine-footers, eight bar tables. Uh, voted number one by Billiards Digest the year we opened in 2008. Full liquor, full kitchen, 10,000 oh. square feet. Nice. So what's, uh, what's your favorite item on your menu? Steak dinner. Steak dinner. Mm, sounds good. So, do you guys have any? Uh, do you guys have tournaments or leagues or anything? We have zero tournaments. There are zero weekly tournaments mm-hmm. because most of my pool players want to gamble. They don't <laughs> even want to get involved in pool tournaments. <laughs> gotcha. Like the action. I have 360 APA players and 70 BCA players. That's great. So definitely fill it up quite a bit, huh? Yeah, we do leagues five nights a week. Nice. Nice. So, uh, so leagues in action, you'll find at Diamond Billiards, huh? Sounds good. So, what else? Uh, what other amenities in your room do you offer? Um, darts, Wi-Fi, pretty women, <laughs> <laughs> and a nice sense of humor, I guess. Huh? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, right on. So, um, are is this uh, family owned or? No, it's uh, me and a partner. Cool. I think I, I think I spoke to Ward yesterday, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So what would you say sets your room apart from others in the area? Uh, you'd have to see these other pool rooms. <laughs> uh, plus the fact that you got Corey Duell as your house pro, right? Yeah, yeah that helps. And <laughs> yeah. Him and we have Justin Halls there all the time. Nice. Um, he lived here for about four years. Mm-hmm. Now he's got a girlfriend and a kid somewhere, so uh, yeah. so he only comes. He comes down a couple times a week, though. He's about three hours away. Yeah. He drives by about ten pool rooms to come play at, at mine. Oh, nice. Sounds uh, sounds like you're taking care of your players for sure. We're in the process of uh, maybe doing a reality TV show at the pool room. Oh, really? And they've come and done some filming and stuff, so we'll oh, see what great. happens. 
Awesome. I, I hope that uh, turns out to be a success. That would be great. Yeah, pool needs something because pool's dying. Oh, I know, right? That's what you know, we're trying. We're trying our our best to pump some blood into it with technology. You know. Um, yeah, it's it's pool needs bar table eight ball. That's the game. Right. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is everybody knows eight ball. Right. The whole world yeah. understands eight ball. Yeah. That's my that's my favorite game. I love playing uh, pool. Pool is the most played sport in the world. More people yeah. play pool a year than any other sport. Yeah. Because and if you think about it, everybody's got pool tables in their house. Pool mm-hmm. tables at the ball, yeah. Pool tables at the senior citizen home. Pool tables yeah. at the youth center. There's pool tables everywhere. Yeah. Want to let everybody know where you're at and how they can get a hold of you? Uh, our address is 1242 Pine Island Road in Cape Coral, Florida. And our phone number is 239-573-7665. Right on. Thank you, James. And as always, you'll be able to find a limited profile of Diamond Billiards Sports Bar on the Go Play Pool app. And we'd love to say become a member because with the Go Play Pool app, you always know what's going on in the member rooms. And you can always check it out on their room profile. So make sure you download the app. It's free on Android and iOS. And James, I thank you for taking the time out of your busy yep. day to talk to us. No problem. Anytime. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in for another Go Play Pool app featured room of the week right here on American Billiard Radio. Welcome back to American Billiard Radio, brought to you by Neil Thrush Cabinets of Mesa, Arizona. I am your host, Mark Cantrell, and I'm joined this week by the Prince of Pool, Corey Duell, who uh, just got back from the Reno Bar Table Championship. How you doing, Corey? Hey, how's it going? You, you've been up there, how long were you in Reno? Oh, I was there uh, about nine days, maybe. Is that how long I mean, it takes for week long term. Probably not that long. Seven days, I think. Right. How, how, how do you do? Uh, I did, did okay. I, I started off slow. The uh, the ten ball, I didn't do all that good. The nine ball, I did okay. I cashed in both of them. And then the one pocket, I played pretty good one pocket. I got to the final three. Uh, Dennis Urquillo beat me, and then Shane Van Boning beat me. I got third in that. And then a uh, nice finish with the eight ball win. I I won the eight ball, so that was cool. You know, I've I've said this many many times, and I'm sure that this, I'm not the only one who said it. To win anything at that Reno Bar Table Championship, or come third in the one well, I guess one pocket was on big tables, but to to win anything up there, that's that's tough action because you play against anybody who's Half decent player, you can find yourself in a hole real quick on those bar tables, huh? Yeah, the bar tables were uh, they were they were a big change from uh, you know they were really fast. 
I don't know if it was a different cloth. I think they're using some bonus, but they were really fast. The rails were on some of them were springy, and uh, you know those diamonds. They're just you. I I told somebody I think uh, I said I ran that whole rack out. I only took the cue back about an inch every shot. <laughs> wow. You know because you really got a baby. You got a baby the ball around uh, to be able to get out. So. Well, do you think that do you think that's the altitude? Maybe I'm not I'm not sure, but uh, I know a lot of shots. I was just praying I didn't scratch. As long as I didn't scratch, I was out. <laughs> right. Well, you've got to be you, you've got to be consistent. You've got to be consistently good up there. Um, like I say, you know, you play against. I don't care who you are. You you play against a half decent player on a bar table. And you can find yourself in trouble pretty quick. Um, well, I, I felt like I was I was definitely in trouble in the finals against Appleton, even though he had to beat me twice in the eight ball. I lost both legs. So in a race to five, if you lose a lag and you're playing guys that run out ninety percent of the time, uh, you're in big trouble. Yeah, yeah, and that that went hill hill. I heard. Yeah, I mean he he had a he had a, a run out. He had a few different ways he could have did it uh, to beat me, and he ended up hooking himself on the eight. And he made a nice kick at it to try and kick it in the side, and uh, it just overcut a little bit. But uh, I think he had a few different ways he could have played that out, uh, probably to make it a little bit easier. Right. But he played real solid patterns the whole, you know, I played him two, I played him three races of five. I beat him on the winner's side, and then he came through the loser's side, and we met back up in the finals. And then uh, the first set he beat me, he played solid there. And the second set he played solid every game except the last one, so. Yeah, and uh, he's he's been doing well recently as well. I mean, he's kind of on his game. So you you did a good job by uh, being able to get through it three times. I mean, nobody wants to play. Nobody really wants to play you. Obviously, nobody wants to play you, but nobody wants to play Darren Appleton these days either. And if you've got to play three sets against him, you know that's tough action. Yeah, well, I got to see I got to see his uh, eight ball game because I've I've heard a lot about his eight ball game, and uh, you know we had played in the IPT together a long time ago. And we played, you know, that was a pretty long, grueling uh, format there. So we played, I think, three three different big tournaments. We we played a lot of games and judged, you know, and he finished very high in that. Uh, that that was always on, that was on big table. I think Edward was first, and Rodney Rodney did good in the IPT. I know Appleton was top twelve, maybe. Something like that in right. the IPT. But that uh, was big tables. That was big tables, yeah. But it's it, you know his game, his that he grew up playing was that uh, English eight ball, which right. is eight ball on a small table, but it's a tight table. And I can see the way he plays his patterns. That that it doesn't matter how big the pockets are, he's going to be able to get out the way he plays patterns because he's playing the same position as if he was playing on a tight small table, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he does. He, he, for somebody who's uh, 
like myself, uh, you're not not as uh, knowledgeable or accomplished. I, I always go with thinking when you're on those small tables, there's more cluster. You know, the balls that are in, can get in the way easier. So, you know, it makes it harder. Your you, you, your position play has to be a lot better on a small table. Am I wrong on that? Or yeah, well, it it really depends on the pocket size. So, so like he he played uh, English eight ball on tight small tables with small balls, and uh, you know on those, yeah, you're gonna have to play really good position. Now over here, if we're playing on say on a valley bar table that's got really big pockets, then you know instead of trying to get real good position on a ball, you might just stop and long rail bank it or bank it cross side. You know where you where Appleton wouldn't do that playing English eight ball. Right. He's not really. He might not be used to doing that. Whereas a guy like a Dave Matlock or you know one of those bar table players, they they stop bank balls and stuff. You know. Right. Right. So just things like that, I guess. But uh, the last run out, he had, he he had a, a few balls down below the eight ball, I guess. And I, I, w- I think when I was looking at the pattern, I would have tried to go down and get those balls first because they were around a bunch of other balls, you know, and then come back up for the other stripes. And then and then you'll be able to, sh- you know, stop on one of those, and then you can shoot the eight in the corner. Whereas if, you're, if your last ball is below the eight, you have to move the cue ball to get it back above the eight. And I think that, you know, I don't know. He, he, there was a bunch of different ways he could have played the out. And, he just uh, picked the right one. He just he he just ran a little too too fast on shape for the ball before the eight and got a big angle on it, and then uh, he he got pretty unlucky really to clip off the ball and hook himself. So. Well, it's, I'm I'm glad you did well up there. It was obviously gonna. So it's a profitable experience with third in the one pocket, first in the eight ball, and then cashing in the ten ball. So good for you. Happy for you. Um, yeah, I was kind of hoping to do a little better in the one pocket. I got uh, – I didn't really play all that well. I probably – I might have played a little too aggressive. I think I went for too many shots. But uh, a couple – I made a few game winner shots where there were maybe maybe like combinations out of the stack where I were. I mean, normally I, if I make that ball and get any shot on another ball, everything's wide open. I'm gonna probably get eight, get out, you know. And I I, I would make the great combination or bank or something, and I would I didn't get into the shot. And it wasn't wasn't like I was actually playing position on a ball. I was just kind of slamming the stack open. Right. And. Uh, you know, you need a little luck there. I didn't. I didn't get. Yeah, it. yeah. You're trying to give yourself something. Expecting to get lucky, and you don't get lucky. Should you be mad at yourself? I don't know. So I, I was. Uh, well, thirty-two shabby. Thirty-two shabby because you probably had the people coming. I don't know if the people from Arizona came or the guys from Southern California or Sacramento. They do a lot one bucket down there, and and they're you know. No slouches as well, but you know. Then he put Dennis O'Colo in there, and Shane in there, and Scott Frost. I guess Scott was there as well. 
That's fair. That's convinced you come third. Yeah, I, I had played a co the year before in the finals of the one pocket, and uh, and he played really good last year. And this year, he actually gave me a lot a lot of opportunities, and I just I just didn't take advantage of them. But I got a lot more opportunities to win this year than yeah. I did last year. And he didn't play quite as well, I thought. I don't know. But, uh, and then Shane... Uh, another another factor in the one pocket was the was the nine foot tables we played on this year. I think the pockets were a little bigger than they were last year, and uh, it was real hard to defend uh, against these straight. Sh- you know, you got Shane's a great straight shooter, and and Urkolo's a real straight shooter. Probably the two straightest shooters in pool right now, and it was just so hard to defend against them because, I mean, I might have balls right around my hole. And you know, leave them an all, a long rail bank that you know on any tight table they're not supposed to go for, but they were going for them out there and and making them. And it's just you know, where do you leave a guy when you can't leave him a long rail bank with the balls in front of your hole? Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I tell you, I'm, I'm gonna move on because uh, I know that you probably don't have a whole lot of time, but. This is, you know, the Moscone Cup. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, from what I've heard, they're already sold out. This far ahead. The, the Moscone Cup? Yeah, yeah. The seats, okay. is a, it's a bigger arena than it has been before. I think it's a thousand seat uh, arena. And a couple of months into the year, and it's already sold out. And the teams haven't been announced. And that's why I keep saying I've been doing this job. I've interviewed uh, Luke Riches and uh, Michaela, the ref, Michaela Tab, and it, it's just to me, it's blowing me away that the teams are not announced and they've already sold out a thousand seats. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I yeah. heard that venue is going to be an unbelievable venue. I'm I'm really praying that I can make the team. Uh, you know, Moscone Cups. Definitely one of my favorite events to go to, and just so exciting out there playing with the crowd going wild and stuff. And, uh, well, your name you know. keeps coming up. That's part of the reason I brought it up. Your, your name keeps coming up, and there's going to be okay. a new face and a, a new system and all these other things that are going to be implemented this year that haven't been. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's going to get to pick the team sooner and things like that. And like I say, your name keeps coming up. So you know, who know who knows? Yeah, I mean, I I'd love to make the team. You know, I uh, I've been itching to get on the team the last I think three four years. I've been watching. You know, uh, the last the last year I played, we actually won too. So <laughs> maybe that maybe that's some sort of omen. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully, if I get on with the win, you know, even even if I drive every ball into the rail, I'll be trying my best. You know. So, right. Now, do you do you know Mark Wilson? Yeah, I know. I'm know Mark pretty good. Uh, you know, we've known each other over the years. I played him in some tournaments and and uh, been around. And he's he's actually promote been involved in promoting and helping with uh, commentary and and he's done a lot of stuff for the sport. So, uh, real good guy. And I, I I'm. You know, looking forward to being around him, and and hopefully I can learn a few things from him. Right. Well, he's uh, 
he's very well respected. You know, I, um, I, I don't really know Mark Wilson uh, very well at all, but, you know, when it was announced that he was going to be team captain, you know, I started looking and seeing the people who were, you know, really behind him. And uh, from everything I've heard from multiple sources, it seems like he's just a great straight-up guy who wants to do a good job and uh, take it the Moscone Cup team to the next level. So hopefully, you know, I mean, what do you, what do you say? The, the rumors are that it's going to be a, a young uh, couple of veterans on the team with some young ones. What, what's your, uh, how do you see the team looking? I know there's a bunch of young players that are out there, uh, you know, in action all the time, and, you know, they're in stroke. So I think that would help to have guys that are that are in stroke and kind of uh, battle toughened up. You know, they've been in battles, I guess. So, now, you, how many times I mean, have you played? Like how many What's times that? have you played on? How many times have you played on the Moscone Cup? Um, I think I played maybe six or seven times. And you know, more. And well, as it's as it's become more and more popular, the crowds have gotten louder and bigger. Um, yeah. And you've played under that situation. No matter how much action any of these other guys are in, there's. Not a lot that can prepare you for what actually it's like to to play under that under those conditions, and like you said yeah. with this, uh, Blackpool, the way it's set up, the acoustics are going to be multiplied and oh, more people. Really? Yeah, it's it's going to be loud. Michaela was on he on on this show, and I, I spoke to her about it. I've been to Blackpool Tower Circus many times myself. And she said, in the interview, don't think that I'm going to be out of control. Usually I can hold up my hand and ask people to be quiet. There, I'm going to have no chance, she said. It's just going to be loud all the time. So you better be yeah. a plan to, you know, with it not being quiet. Yeah, it gets pretty crazy at those things, uh uh, I don't, I don't you know, know how these young guys... was pretty neat to play in. That was pretty neat. Uh, we wanted your call. Uh, the last... Uh, well, I think the last time I played was in Vegas and we won. And then I also remember the one in Rotterdam. That was a pretty cool one because I won... I got to win the last set and that, that uh, tied the score... I played... Who did I play? Uh, we tie, we'd end up, we end up tying the score, and that, that gave me... I think I ended up getting uh, MVP that year. I think I got MVP two years. Maybe. The first year I played, I got MVP, and then that, that year I got to... Got to uh, That's pretty cool. So it was that, pretty neat. Yeah, I didn't know that. 
Um, well, I hope it works out for you. I hope you get on the team. Um, I think that, you know, it'd be, you'd be a great addition to the team. I mean, you've got some experience with it, and that's the thing. And maybe you can help if, you know, what's being said actually happens and they do bring some younger players on that don't have experience under those conditions. Hopefully there's a way that you can point them in the right direction. I'm not saying it's going to be a hanger for you either, though. You know, it's, it's still you still got to deal with it, whether you've done it ten times or never. So hopefully but you can give them some advice to on how to handle it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see if, if it happens. Uh, you know, I'm just hoping I get on the team. I'm hoping they pick me, so. Um, yeah, it'd be well, great. Well, that's something we're going to have to wait and see. So, um, what what have you been up to? What have you been doing with yourself? I've been playing, been playing quite a bit. Um, I've been finishing okay. You know, I won, won a couple... Did good in some bar table turns. I got second there on a big table, tur- big table, the Florida State Championship. Me and Tommy Kennedy, and then uh, actually, yeah, there's been actually, you know, you know what? There's been quite a few things going on since the start of the year with Derby City, and you know, with this West Coast. Did you go on the whole West Coast swing? I Sorry. missed. Uh, I missed the Swanee down there. I took a week off after that one. I went and played bonus ball. And the bonus ball was pretty fun. Actually, we won a match. Me and Hunter Lombardo and uh, Jose Perico, we won a match. And then uh, we got beat there by uh, Minnesota. They have, they ended up winning the whole thing. You know, they played really good. But uh, that was pretty fun to play. So hopefully they come come back and do some more stuff. Well, that's, that's good that you're, you know, staying busy. Um, what's, what's going on? Are you being busy so far this year? What's going on in the future? What do you got planned? Anything uh, particular? Um, I got some events uh, I'm going to go to. I'm, I'm thinking about going to uh, the Superbeard Expo. I haven't signed up yet. Uh, I got some stuff I got to take care of in Florida. As long as I can get that taken care of, I'm going to go. Uh, and then I think I'm going to go play the China Open this year. Oh, wow. And then, uh, you know, the World Nine Ball in Qatar, U.S. Open. Uh, also going to go to the Four Bears. Uh, I won that last year, Four Bears Eight Ball. That's up in uh, North Dakota. I'll play that. Uh, what else do I have going on? Well, that, that's the thing. There's, you know, there's also CSI is doing a 16-player tournament in uh, in Vegas along with the league stuff. Yeah, did you get an invite for that? I guess I'm supposed to be going to that too. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he's kind of been with that whole CSI Invitational thing. What the press releases or the announcements that are being made is the 16 players that are being invited. And the invitations have gone out, but nobody actually really knows who the 16 players are. I don't think it's being advertised. Just, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I think I might be getting invited to that. I don't know. But that, I, I just, 
I'm not sure. I'm not. I haven't heard a definite yet about it. So. Okay. Um, well, yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah, I have to see. Well, there's a, what are they going to be doing? They're doing the eight ball, U.S. Open eight ball and ten ball there. So I think that's what yeah, they, okay. the two events. Oh, there. That's going to be U.S. Open eight ball and ten ball, and it's yeah. sixteen men. Sixteen men. Uh, I didn't. Uh, the last I heard was there's eight from Europe and oh, eight international players. And eight U.S. players. That's the last I heard. So, okay. Um, there's a good chance it's going to be on there. How, how's your get? You see, part of this, just so you know, part of this uh, show that we do, we're trying our best to let the listeners. We, we've got quite a few listeners now. Um, can they get to know the pro players, the industry people, a little bit better, other than a name? Because a lot of times, all they see of Corey Duell is you sat on a chair, looking with your cue, staring at the table with a concentrated face, or at the table playing. They're in a whole lot of emotion. People don't know a lot about some of the players. So, uh, the, the reason I ask that is we played golf together. I think it was here in Arizona with Earl a couple of years ago. Yeah. How's your golf game going? You know what? I, I actually I stopped playing golf. Uh, I haven't been playing. I haven't really played in a year. I played the first round, and it wasn't even a full round, but in a long time with, uh, you know, I played with Shane there after the Sacramento tournament. We both ended up getting beat out of the uh, nine ball, and we said, well, you know what? It's about noon. Let's go play nine holes. And, and he ended up beating me. He got me. He uh, he shot a 44, and I shot a 46 on nine holes. But I just borrowed somebody's clubs, and yeah, I haven't I haven't really been playing. Well, but, uh, you were, at one point, you were taking it pretty serious. I was playing a lot, you know. Uh, I had always played a lot. You know, I started playing golf when I was about 18, and I had a membership at a country club there in Ohio when I lived there. And I would, that, that was my daily routine is I would wake up in the morning, go play, go hit some golf balls, play around the golf, and I'd go to the gym and and head to the pool room and play pool all night. And then I'd wake up and do the same thing the next day. And I did that. That sounds uh, like a good life to me. Yeah, I, I, I did that. Uh, but, it, you know, I needed to get outside, and that, that kept me sane. So, uh, but I did that for, you know, probably from 18 years old to, what, 30, 34, 35? You know, and this last year, I've just taken off. I haven't, I haven't played golf this last year. So. Yeah, uh, I remember when. when kind of, I just, maybe I'm just getting tired of it or I'm getting older and it's just, uh, I don't know. But, you know, the year, the, my best year in 2001, I played golf every day. I mean, did not miss a day. And that was my best year. So uh, I, know, I know that when we played, uh, Scooby me, Earl, I can't remember who else. Oh, was it Scooby from Aero Phoenix? I think maybe. Anyway, yeah, sticks. And you were laying them down on the ground. It was like a pattern or something, and you had to stand a certain way with these sticks. Stack it. 
Is it called dancing or something that you were doing? Uh, oh, it's just like aiming, uh, the training, training aid for aiming. Okay. Uh, yeah, you just, you know, just setting up the same way. I was just practicing the, in golf just to set up the same way. If I can put my feet and shoulders in the same position every time, that'll help my pre-shot routine. Right. Yeah. I know Earl was off to one side. He was just making fun of you. Every time you put that, every time you were standing in those sticks, you know, you're stacked, Corey, you're stacked. Yeah, I guess he didn't <laughs> see the, I guess he didn't see the, uh, you know, the, the, reason behind it too much so yeah yeah well you know he thought he was making fun of me you should have seen the rest of the range making fun of him when he was in golf he's got an unusual golf swing Earl does but he hits it good and he plays pretty good so yeah, he he does play pretty good. Yeah, I was in uh, I played with him a, a few times, and sometimes he goes off like he's, you know, like sometimes he does when he's playing pool. And he was putting, and I guess I was dead somewhere I shouldn't be because you're you're in my eyesight. You're in my eyesight. You're trying to shock me. You're trying to shock me. You think you can beat me, don't you? And so he was getting more and more riled up each hole. And eventually I had to stand, like, right behind him. There's no way, unless he was a lizard, he could see me. But he's like, I can still see you back there. You're shocking me. <laughs> so, anyway, it was uh, def- definitely an experience, uh, for sure. But, well, I-, I tell you what, Corey, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to just chat with us a little bit. Um, if you, who's, who's your sponsors right now? Can you mention a couple of your sponsors? Yeah, I'm sponsored by uh, OBQs and uh, Diamond Billiards in Cape Coral, Florida. Uh, you know, definitely the nicest, nicest pool room in Florida right now. Uh, so if you're ever in Cape Coral area, you can stop by there, see me, and uh, I do lessons out of there and stuff. Uh Those- those people yeah. at OBQs are nice as well. Don and Anita and Royce, they're all great people as well. Yeah, great product too. Uh, you know, I've been I've been doing well with it. So uh, you know, it was, I think it was a, a change for the better for me, for sure. Good. So uh, good, good hitting staff and uh, yeah, the brake cue is awesome too. And I I I have a new jump cue that I don't think it's out on the market yet. They got an OB jump cue, and it breaks down in two places, and it's it's a real good jump cue too. But uh, it helps me because I got kind of long arms. Is it a jump and, cue uh, or ju- jump break? It's just a jump cue, but it breaks down in two places. It's a little bit longer, and I have long arms. I get bottled up with those real short jump cues, and I just I don't know. It just doesn't feel right for me. Right. So, uh, but. I think that's going to probably be on the market pretty soon, if it isn't already. Right. I don't think it is. But, yeah, if, uh, anybody out there is looking for any OB stuff, just get a hold of me on Facebook or or contact the uh, website, obqs.com. I saw you before I go. I, just thinking about you jumping. I'm like, how many days, you know, how is he jumping the ball? I remember, I can't remember, I think we might have been, it, we, 
you know, spent a little bit of time together. Uh, we were in Columbus, Ohio, and jumped from one table to the other and made a bowl from the center of the other table. Remember that? You probably don't remember. Yeah. It's the same place yeah, you put, like, three racks of balls together and made a big triangle and ran them out. What's that? Yeah, I used to get kicked out. I used to get kicked out of pool rooms for that, trying to fly the ball from one table to the other one. <laughs> well, you a little bit more leeway these days. <laughs> but, yeah. Corey, thanks a lot, buddy. I appreciate it, and uh, uh, good luck in the future. And hopefully, I'll be talking to you again real soon. All right, talk to you later. That's it for American Billiard Radio, the Legends and Champions Report. With myself, Mark Cantrell, brought to you by Neil's Garage Cabinets of Mesa, Arizona. Until next week, have a good one. Oh, I started out believing the universe was space. That all the solid objects were founded in full grace. I started out believing that earthworms could not crawl. Music plays, a donkey brays, dogs have days, horse has nays, and everyone has a ball. But it's dovetail, gooey, gooey, stringy, chewy, mushy kind of ball. Rap, flap, tap, sap, constantly moving.